Hello and welcome to the Cinema in Seconds podcast. This is the podcast where we look at small moments in great movies. My name is Ian. And I'm Daniel. And this week we have decided we're going to talk about movies that we love, but that other people hate. And to help us out with this topic, Cam, welcome back to the show. Hey guys, thanks for having me again. Uh, and Cam, this was your idea. This is your topic. So it was. So what kind of kicked it off for you? <laughs> Say what? Well, what kind of made you think of the idea? I don't know. I was just kind of uh, thinking, you know, looking through this your guys' show and everything like that, and different topics, and then it suddenly hit me that you know there are some movies that you know I really like that just get land blasted by everyone else, and I don't really necessarily understand why. I think it's a lot easier to say, you know, these are really popular movies that I hate, and this is why. So I think it's a lot more difficult to come from that other side where, you know, everyone hates it, and, you know, this is why I like it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And we've done uh, we've done the guilty pleasures, but I think this is definitely a different vibe than that, right? Like, this is this is movies that we're not like, yeah, I know it's bad, but I kind of like it. This is more like, no, I genuinely love this movie. But yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, and there's a different. I mean, it, it's that factor of like that other people hate. Like Rocky Four is a guilty pleasure of mine. Most people assume most people know Rocky Four is pretty dumb. I don't know if anyone like hates Rocky Four. You know what I mean? Uh, maybe Karl Marx. Yeah, it's pretty but well otherwise. Yeah, yeah, communists hate it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Karl Marx. But you know, like. People know what it is, and there's a sort of ceiling to maybe the types of reception it's going to get or the type of love it's going to get, but it's not hated, uh, which for me was also something of a challenge for this week because there are a lot of movies that I like that are not particularly well-received, but there's not that many that I love. And the other factor that just makes it hard, and I'd be curious if this was something you guys struggled with at all, is the sense of like any discussion about movies being over or underrated, it's so highly contextual. Um, Because in the broader context, I could have easily chosen Rob Zombie's Halloween 2, but online, there is a contingent of people that love that movie. I was actually going to put either the first or one or second one, too, and then I was like, (laughs) okay, Dan's already fought this fight, so I'm going (laughs) to take a pass. Yeah. (laughs) <laughs> but it was this thing where I'm like, you know, I, there's almost no movie I can think of that I would say, oh, everyone hates this because I know there's some semblance because of the internet of some community that's like, that's our boy, you know? <laughs> so it becomes a challenge. Like, I, I have one that is, I think, very clearly uh, everyone hates and I love, and it's one of the only ones I have that's the purest version of that. And then another that's, kind of more of a cheat but i think i'll make it work but this was hard for me i actually spent all i mean you guys might have known if you were paying attention to our shared document i didn't update my second pick for a very long time so yeah i didn't either because i kept going back and forth in a few options but i think i like what i picked i found it actually more difficult to find stuff that you know people hated that weren't just bad well, if that, yeah. I mean, the reason people hate it is because those movies actually suck. <laughs> sure. Yeah. And like, you know, universally, I think everyone says they suck. Well, and the other thing, too, is like there's movies that people hate that I don't hate or I think are kind of 
okay or I think are even decent, but do I love them? Like I I considered putting mm-hmm. Bergman's All These Women because it is like you universally Oh, people considered... rage against that movie, man. Here's the thing. <laughs> it's universally considered like the worst movie he ever made from his like established filmmaker days. It has the lowest rating of any of his films on Letterboxd that like two point something, which for Uncle Igmar is quite low. And I think it's kind of funny. It's a decent little comedy, but it's like, do I love it? Or do Everywhere I Everywhere I go, it's... people are People are ragging on that movie, like on the street corner. People are like, can you believe Bergman made that? I will not accept an argument for populism, good sir. <laughs> the common man? This The show ain't for him. <laughs> the show's for the hardcore cinephile. Oh, yeah. Um, so, yeah, sorry. <laughs> um, but even that, like, that's a good point, too. Like, it's not, it's the it's a movie that, like, everyone hates is really, like, Bergman fans think is his worst movie and that was kind of one of my closest like oh maybe because i do think it's kind of fun um well the second one i picked like i wouldn't say i love it but uh but i do think it's and it's a recent one that i do think it gets uh gets ragged on pretty bad but the first one i genuinely love mm-hmm. the poster child i think for this for me anyway is of course the last jedi but I've defended The Last Jedi on the show in a number of times, so I decided we're just going to leave that one. <laughs> and this is another place where context is really key, because it's like, people often say everyone hates, well, casually, like Red Letter Media have said that, everyone hated that movie. It's like, that movie was extraordinarily well-reviewed, had a high, uh, you know, like people say, like, oh, the audience score on Rotten Tomatoes is really low. It's like, it's low because it was t- deliberately tanked to be low by the haters, you know, it it's it high box office sold high units in physical media in a time where physical media is not doing so hot. Like by most metrics, it is a well liked movie. It's just that the people who really don't like it are very loud online. You know, mm-hmm. so it is this question of like not to say that there aren't a contingent of people who clearly really do hate it or that there wasn't divisive arguments to be had or that some of those arguments even aren't valid, but. To some extent, the everybody hates it quality of it, I think, is kind of blown out of proportion. And again, it goes back to the difficulty of like, how do you gauge that? You know, like, yeah. you, other than just being like vibe check, Last Jedi, <laughs> like, <laughs> well, I suppose we can get into that. Um, I'll start it off with one that I think is actually not to the level of Last Jedi, but I think it's a similar idea. So. It's Ridley Scott's Prometheus, which came out in 2012. And it's the like the prequel to the Alien to the Alien series. And it's that is a movie that I just like I loved it when I first saw it. I was very, very, very skeptical about an alien prequel. And I was like, why are they doing this? Um and it seemed kind of dumb, but Prometheus completely won me over when I saw it in the theaters and I like it because there's it's not just like a, oh let's kind of try to tell the story leading up to the aliens being created let's let's do something a little bit more with it let's make this movie about something and I think that they really succeeded in doing that I think that it's it explores the idea of religious belief really well um, I think it explores the idea of generational 
relationships and generational, you know, trauma really well. And I think it explores that in many different avenues, right? So you've got like David, the robot, who's kind of, you know, he's considered like the son of this Wayland character, but he's also like as a robot or as an Android, he's the offspring of human beings in general. And then who are human beings, the offspring of, and it, it really delves into these questions of where did we come from? Like the big questions, where did we come from? Why were, why are we here? All that kind of stuff. And it, it goes full into why it's trying to explain that. So my, my moment, I guess, is actually more at the end of the film. So I guess if you haven't seen Prometheus yet, just a quick spoiler warning, I'm not going to say everything that happened, but I will say that there's a moment at the end of the film where Elizabeth Shaw, who's the main character, uh, played by Numi Rapace, her and David, Michael Fassbender's android creature, they're in this predicament where basically they, they're getting off of the planet that they're exploring. Uh, they have a ship and you know, the logical thing was, okay, they're going to go back to earth. And even David's like, okay, well, I'll, I'll set the, I'll set the course back to earth. And she says, no, we're not going home. We're going back to where these, like the aliens that they found, we're going back to where they came from. And so I like that because it's like, a continuation of the search for God in a sense, or the search for meaning or a search for the truth. Um, and even though they thought that they were going to find this here in this planet in Prometheus, they thought that they were going to find all the answers to these questions. They didn't. They ended up being very disappointed with what they did find and uh, rather disturbed, to be honest. Um, but there's the sense that, okay, but that doesn't mean that there's nothing out there. We have to keep exploring. We have to keep finding out what's out there. I think it really speaks to the themes of this movie, that decision. And I've always loved that that's the ending and it's kind of leads it off into a, okay, now they're, they're out and you can kind of make up your own story about what's going to happen to them. Um, and where they're, it's going to go from here and that they will probably never find an answer, but they're going to keep looking for an answer. So I think there's something deeper going on in Prometheus that I don't, I think a lot of people just kind of dismiss and I don't really get why. So that's where we're starting off. Well, I disagree. This movie sucks. Uh, oh, man. <laughs> no, I really like Prometheus. Um, I don't, I, I did, I hardcore loved it when I first saw it, and I've cooled a lot on it since, but I still think it's a very good movie uh, with some amazing sequences, and its sense of ambition is hard not to just admire, uh, especially, and I, I also feel like if this came out, like, today, I'd probably be even more grateful for it, because, I don't know, movies like that feel even more in short supply right now. Um but I think in terms of thinking through like why it was so hated, I think a lot of it just has to do with the timing of its release being, you know, summer of 2012, or I guess like spring of 2012 leading into the summer um, and how closely that corresponds to the massive rise in popularity of honest trailers and cinema sins on YouTube, 
which start right around that time, maybe a little bit before. And this movie became a, you know, gold mine for them to pick apart nitpicky plot hole stuff, many of which is not, I think, fair reads of the film. The one everyone always brings up is that the, oh, why would they take off their helmets? That's so dumb. But in the scene, it's being framed as a dumb thing to do. They're literally imploring the guy not to do it because it's dangerous and a bad idea. So like, yeah, it also it ties it it ties into the themes I was just saying, right? Like he's he has faith that he's going to be okay in this situation. He's mm -hmm. he's playing more off of his emotions than logic because that's what somebody in that position would do at that moment, right? He's about to reach his mm -hmm. answers. He doesn't want to be hindered by a by a suit, and he's trusting that the atmosphere is breathable because he's like, well, yeah, this place is meant for us. And there's an element of hubris to it. That's appropriate for that character too, because later when David asked him, you know, why do you, why did your people make me? You want to ask your creator why you were made? Why did your people make me? And he just says, we made you cause we could with that yeah. sort of shitty smile. It's like, yeah, this, that him taking off his helmet is totally consistent with this person and his personality and his character flaws. So yeah. Uh, yeah, like I think it's and there's a lot of stuff in the movie like that that got picked on um, that Charlize Theron only runs and runs in the one direction rather than to the side. And it's like, I don't know, there's a giant spaceship falling on you. It's easy to be like, why didn't you just do this way? Like, I, I'd probably just trip and die immediately. So I can't be too judgy about uh, how old Charlize was handling it. Um, but it was just like it's the kind of film that does not play well to Internet pedants who are uh, live for that kind of criticism. Yeah, that's fair. It's, I think it's very, it's, I just, I just love it. I think it's a really admirable movie though. In so many ways, the design of that, the design of the film is incredible. Like it, it harkens back to, you know, the Geiger designs of old, but it's kind of its own, you know, it kind of has its own take on it. Um, the score is incredible. I think that it's it's heart is in the right place because oh, it's yeah. like it is it's a movie about exploration that was not what I was expecting when I was thinking of an alien prequel like it's it's about the joy of discovery and uh, the weight of discovery I think it's fantastic yeah like I mean it, it starts it starts off with this idea of like panspermia right the idea that aliens seeded the earth which I think is a ridiculous ridiculous theory the movie commits to that um and it's it does it in a way where you know it talks about uh shaw's faith right she's a christian and even you know people are like well this doesn't this uh you know discount all of your beliefs she's like not really she's like because this actually doesn't explain a whole lot because now you have to explain where these creatures came from and then you know where does that go and they keep going back and back and back mm -hmm. yeah well and that's so the like element that. too that's most similar to like 2001 space odyssey where like mm -hmm. this idea of because kubrick talked about it as being like a spiritual film because it is in a sense about a search for god and people said well is the alien god it's like well they would appear like god to us you know their mastery and their power and their influence over us would be comparable to our understanding of a god that doesn't mean it's capital g god as you know represented in various faiths but that it serves a similar function or there's a similar power relationship there um which is also like indicative of how 
one can question how if, if doing that in the vessel of an alien prequel was the best strategy. And I think there are drawbacks to me. The biggest problem with the film is simply that they arrive on the planet and they find evidence of this alien species that for sure existed. There's this whole like ship and area to explore, but the one guy's like all disappointed because they didn't find the living creators. It's like, you've been here like a day and you found all this, (laughs) but it's, and it's because like, we got to get into monster movie territory. So we can't spend too much time. Like that's the stuff that probably bothers me the most about this movie more than like, why do you take off his helmet? I noticed that right away too. It's like you, you literally just traveled to a new planet, prove that there's, you know, other life and you're spitting the dummy because it's not what you wanted. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. That 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 bothered me, but yeah, the other, I mean, movie logic stuff, but yeah, and like to me, it's like I get it because on a on a pacing perspective, it would be difficult to depict them being there for say, I don't know, six months to a year, and then getting no progress, and then starting to feel burnt out and hopeless and and uh, fatigued with the process. That for me is where the story I think would have been more interesting. But I also get by the logic of pacing a summer blockbuster where there's thrills and a monster and suspense that's a harder sell i get why they kind of needed to kick it into high gear um but it's also like i think it's a criticism i have of the movie it by no means deflates it or makes it worthless there's way too much interesting stuff in it to be uh thrown away and ian to go back to your moment that sense of wonder that the film still leaves you with i mean how many prequels do we see that their sole function seems to be to explain every detail from the thing you already love. Um, yeah. The fact that this prequel still ends by stirring wonder and mystery um, is kind of a great thing. Yeah. And I think her, like my moment, I think her decision is a big part of that. I think it would have been really disappointing if they just headed back to earth. Mm-hmm. I like that. They're still out there searching. I mean, yeah, <laughs> they did come back for a second movie that was very disappointing, but um, and how that was revealed. So I I'm, in like my mind, movie. they're still out there searching. <laughs> <laughs> I kind of like Alien Covenant. All the alien stuff is not good, but all the Michael Fassbender is Dr. Frankenstein. Big fan. <laughs> I, I got the feeling that a lot was edited out of this movie, though. Like, it just felt like they wanted to say a whole lot more. Mm-hmm. And then it just, you know, like you said, for pacing sake, we got to, ah, we got to chop this, chop that, and just we'll make, you know, this guy a baby and these people really angry. And uh, one thing I noticed with like David there is, you know, he's supposed to be this android, but I always got the feeling of, you know, genuine emotion, mm-hmm. especially like anytime that someone said that, uh well you're not real or you know, you're not a real boy like he always had this look of pain in his face yeah and then you know so i wasn't wondering if you know they were going to explore that more um but then also you know when he's doing the somewhat evil stuff is he doing that just because his his boss told him to do that kind of crap or you know is he genuinely you know dealing with those kinds of emotions Mm -hmm. yeah Yeah, which i I believe the opening of covenant reveals basically guy pierce tells him something i don't know if he literally says hey mess with the crew but he gives him some sort of instruction that 
kind of retroactively explains that more. But yeah, like the question of motivation is a little bit vague. Um, and I would say that I, there's definitely a lot of deleted material in general, like just that was shot and was cut. Um, and I do wonder about the script. I think from what I gathered, the script writing was something of a chaotic process in the first place. And I would say, I think Ridley's direction is better than the actual script is his sense of vision. Not that the script is bad. I think it's, there's a lot in it that I really like, um, including some of the characters, especially Numi Rapace's, uh, lead, um, but I think Ridley really injects that sense of grandeur and mystery and wonder more than the written word on the page does. Yeah, I'll agree with you there. He um, does take charge of the movie. And it's kind of rare in that sense, because like Ridley, I mean, he often can elevate material through sheer force of his uh, um, high quality filmmaking. But this feels like one of the few times he really like elevates a screenplay in that sense. Um into being something more than it just would be on the page. Cause oftentimes he'll make like good looking, well-paced, well-acted movies that are questionable material, but it's rare that I find he takes something that like to another level, just through his sense of craft or at least not to this extreme, maybe. Yeah. Yeah. It was, it was nice to have him return back to mm -hmm. the series. I was surprised he did, but he All seems good. to enjoy it. I hope he gets to yes. make more. Yeah, we'll find out. If they're going to keep making alien movies, just let Grandpa Ridley do whatever weird stuff he wants with them. <laughs> it would do be you good think maybe some of the hate comes from the fact that it is just basically nerd rage and it isn't what people expected a prequel to be like? They wanted it to be made, you know, Alien or Aliens 2.0. So when it was a bit more of a thought-provoking... I mean, there's a lot more to me, a, a lot more exploration and, you know, it's not that high paced, high adrenaline movie like the others, mm -hmm. you know? So I'm wondering if that's kind of where some of the hate comes from that people just, well, it's not what I think it's supposed to be. I think that's very possible because I think in order for like people to grab onto the nitpicky ideas, they have to not like the movie first, right? It has to rub them the wrong way. So I think you're right. Like, I think mm -hmm. that rubs them the wrong way. And so then they start looking for the things to pick apart. Because I guarantee, like, some of our favorite movies have stupid things in them. But because we love those movies, we just absolutely pass over them and don't really care about that. 100%. Um, but when you don't like it, yeah. that's when you go, you go after it. Yeah, and I think it's also consistent, Cam, your point when you look at the sort of franchise movies that have come in the wake of Prometheus, not necessarily they're responding to Prometheus, but the ones that like have been the most warmly received by the general public have tended to be the ones that just did the same stuff again. Force Awakens, Jurassic World, um, Ghostbusters Afterlife, which is shocking to me, but people do like that movie. Um, that would be a good one we can do for movies we hate that others love because good Lord. <laughs> but um <laughs> Uh, you know, Jurassic World, like these are films that like, and yeah, there are critics who have been vocally against these films to some degree or another, especially maybe on the more like Ghostbusters or Jurassic World side of things. Force Awakens is pretty warmly received as well, but they resonate in that comforting way with the general public. That's something like Prometheus doesn't even really try to like, there are a couple of nods to the original, um, but they're more just fun Easter eggs or like fun teases, not just sort of, the overall package of the film being about uh, 
hitting you with those sort of stimulating nostalgic releases. Yeah. All right. Well, that's Prometheus. I yeah, love it. Definitely you don't hate it. Wrong. Yeah, I definitely don't hate it either. So you're in good company here, Ian. All right. Well, I don't know about the next one. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> We're getting into some real highbrow stuff here now. Uh, so mine is 2002's Resident Evil. Um, so, you know, I'm a big fan of the games. Uh, played, you know, Resident Evil 2 and 3 and 4 so much uh you know in high school so i was pretty stoked uh when they ma- actually made a movie um which i mean mo- video game movies generally yeah are, are fresh <laughs> Real- realistically i don't think it was you know until last of us came out that it's actually been warmly received like yeah. but, uh, but that's a series yeah, I mean, and, I think that I think there's a lot of stuff people will say is like, oh, there's some good ones, but they until Last of Us, I don't think they've had like a their version of Superman the movie, where it's yeah. like, oh, this isn't just like functional or it, it's passing the bar. It's like actually like really good. And I, I don't think video games actually really lend themselves to movies in themselves because I mean, if you know, you think of it, even a smaller video game, you're looking at you know 12 hours to finish and that's a lot of story and then you know it's, that's you know gameplay included but you know there's some that have huge set pieces like metal gear solid 4 had over eight hours of cutscenes in a game so how are you gonna brush all that down and that's only one part of you know five parts of the metal gear series how are you gonna crush that all down to two and a half hours mm-hmm so I don't think video games really lend themselves that well to uh, to movies themselves. I think that's probably why Last of Us is able to be more successful because I think it does work better as a TV series. But anyways, yeah. Uh, so yeah, my uh, I was psyched when this came out. I really like it, always have, um, and my my. Um, my moment so i guess given some background of it if you don't know this movie um ian did you see this with us in the theaters or no nope i saw it for the first time this weekend i saw the second one in theaters with you guys i had yeah i saw the second one i remember that very clearly and i was like (laughs) oh what's going on and had no context (laughs) uh yeah so uh basically what happens um you know umbrella evil corporation uh pharmaceutical company on the front but also uh focusing on bio weapons has a underground facility called the hive uh right at the beginning of the movie you see that uh someone breaks a vial with what can only be assumed is some sort of virus and that starts shutting the place down uh and then the um the ai within it um shuts shuts the uh locks it all down kills everyone in there and they send in these operatives to figure out why and of course once they get in the first thing that they want to do is shut down the power uh which you know only makes sense 
I, I mean, there, there's definitely one thing there that uh, is a bit of an issue that, you know, why would, you know, Umbrella's corporation or, you know, why would you have this high tech facility and not actually know why it goes offline? But uh, anyways, so it, they shut off the power. So that released a lot of the security measures. And um, this is shortly after their first encounter. And uh, they're standing around kind of confused what the hell is going on. And you just hear this dragging noise from the distance. What the hell is that? And it cuts to the the angle uh, at the feet. And there's this zombie with a nice busted ankle dragging an axe. Coolest scene. It um, really was a bit of a throwback to the movie, or pardon me, to the games where they kind of have those you know, appearances in a lot of the earlier ones, like in the very first one, there's the the zombie reveal where, you know, you first encounter a zombie and they slowly turn around and you see the face. To me, that was very similar in its um, presentation. And I, I just really like the way they did that. So that's my moment. Nice. So they went in to find out what went wrong. Yeah, I didn't get that. I had no idea why they were there. Oh, it, <laughs> I didn't know what the characters were doing at all. I was like, they're just wandering around corridors. I don't. Oh, okay. it was... <laughs> yeah. Uh, there was actually two things that kind of you know made me laugh right off the hop is when they burst in there, and uh, these special operatives got you know they're throwing gas grenades and all this sort of stuff, and they're wearing these gas masks. Well. <laughs> I used for work. I used to wear those gas masks, and they don't have any of the filtration cartridges on there, so they would just be breathing in that crap. <laughs> the gas uh, mask it does nothing. <laughs> <laughs> um, and then, and then another thing that I really picked up in a lot of shows is, you know, they kind they're you know you're about to drop into a, you know. A house where you're going to be potentially shooting people, and then they pull out a gun, hold it someone's head, and then rack it. It's like, why would you be going into a situation without your gun loaded? <laughs> well, you got to show that you're loading it at the moment. It's, it's <laughs> cinematic. <laughs> yeah, that's and like I'm not a big gun guy or anything like that, but I've just that's something I've picked up on on in a lot of TV and movies. Why? Why is it still not ready to go? <laughs> <laughs> They're very like, they're very pacifist. Like they have weapons because just in case, but they really don't want to have to use them. <laughs> yeah, I will say the idea of a zombie carrying an axe is pretty cool. Like, <laughs> it's uh, I can't think of another like zombies don't use tools. What's going on? But yeah, well, exactly, did you start to develop that in the third Romero film, Day of the Dead? Oh, yeah. Did yeah. you start to develop? They they're teaching uh uh the zombie how to use a, a telephone say hello to your aunt alicia bub very good film um and george romero almost directed the first resident evil movie like it was going to be a different right? script but he was at one point developing a resident evil film and it fell through for i'm not really sure why um but i went with paul ws anderson instead uh <laughs> voice of a generation um you know it's well, funny way. well um, I, I mean, there's the thing too with these. Like, I'm not familiar with the series, really. I haven't seen the first film. I saw the second one, 
and I'll talk about my one moment from that just for fun later. Although I think I might have, it might be from another movie and I've just conflated it into resident evil. But uh, from what I've gathered, the one sort of main element from the games that gets reproduced in the movies is just a lot of the iconography, the visuals, the characters, they're like, they look like exactly. Um, And I'm not sure if this specific dragging axe across is like a literal rip from the games, but it does feel like a very much like, as you were saying earlier, like evoking the iconography and uh, sense of um, the sort of almost comic book quality of these monsters that the games have translating that to film, which is probably where it's where the films are at their most successful. Um, Certainly in translating the game, because I don't know if they're and you'd know better than I do because you're a fan of the games, but they don't seem that close to like, the overall tone of the game or to my understanding um the first one i thought very much was okay um what i liked about it it was that it wasn't just a you know rehash of one of the old games uh, you know as a movie it was a completely original story uh completely new characters again in the first one it was all different characters i don't think there was a single uh character in, in any of the games in that in that movie um there was little nods here and there like um you know they I went with a there's one point where she's in the mansion so first off the first game set in an old mansion so that's just you know there is part of the set you know she opens the door she's walking and a bunch of you know crows come out and you know a bit of a jump there and that's um again from the games they had crows randomly attack you um the dress she's wearing was you know a you know kind of a shout out to the ada wong dress that she wears in the games but again it's all just like little bits of you know of the lore but not an actual carbon copy there in the first one and it's much more of a like a straight up more of a old school zombie movie okay um the second one takes a lot more for the game from the games and then the yeah then it's just taking bits and pieces from the games and then just going off the rails <laughs> okay so obviously i mean you know i'm not a big video game guy mm-hmm. but i remember people talking about a game and it might have been resident evil games that are like um scary yeah right like it freaks you out like if you're playing at night or something yeah so I think that the axe would probably play well to that, especially like the sound before, right? That I can exactly. I can see that being kind of like a like an ambient frightening idea that from that would come from a game like that. Yeah, because you're sitting there like, what what is that? What you know they had, I think they had just finished shooting a zombie or two, and then all of a sudden they hear this dragging noise from afar in this big warehousey <laughs> thing, and it's going, what is going on? So I thought that was really that always really stuck out with me always. For what it's worth, yeah. Ian, uh, the sorry, go ahead. No, go ahead. Well, just the people talking to you about like the genuinely scary video game. They might have also been talking about the Silent Hill games, which are kind of the other big horror games from this series, uh, this time frame, and they seem to be a bit more like psychological than the sort of visceral. Like there's visceral horrors as well, but Resident Evil is more like monsters and right. zombies and creepy places and silent hill and especially silent hill 2 is cool. um like 
character psychological breakdown, uh, which also got adapted into a film. I have seen that movie. Um, so anyway, well, the people who would have been out that out there, the people who would have been telling me about these video games would have been Cam. So, <laughs> so. <laughs> yeah, uh, and. You know what the the way it's um, done in the in the movie is very similar to the games. Like it does start off a lot more horror. You know they call it survival horror, so it's a lot more slower paced and you know more creepy stuff. And then as it go gets going on, it gets more you know a little bit. I mean, part of the game's charm is that it is a little bit cheesy. Some of the dialogue is cheesy. Some of the you know these ever evolving monsters get you know, more and more ridiculous as the game goes on. And same with the, the movie. You say thing. that as the cat just creepily shows up over your head. <laughs> that was good. <laughs> and it doesn't work well on a podcast. I apologize, everybody. Yes. That was pretty funny. <laughs> um, so I completely forgot what I was going to say. Oh, yeah. I was gonna say, it's, it's to me, and this is going to sound dumb, but in, for a zombie movie, but it is a little bit more grounded than uh, a lot of the games, and definitely the fir- movies further on. <laughs> yeah, I have not seen much, like, I've only seen the second movie, but I've seen bits and pieces from some of the later ones, and, uh, ooh boy. Yeah. Um, they 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 get pretty, pretty out there. Uh, the one moment, and I don't know if it's actually from the second movie, or if I've just, like, it's from something else or I just hallucinated it. But I remember this bit where uh, Mila Jovovic, Alice, I believe is her name is like yeah. under gunpoint and they're like, put your weapon down. And so she throws her gun down and the guys kind of lower the guns. And then she like dives to catch the gun before it hits the ground and then shoots the bad guys. I think that might've been the second one. That was definitely not the first one. I think it happens in the second one. Uh, I remember it from watching that at the time and as like a 10 year old thinking that's awesome. And now looking back, I'm like, <laughs> I don't know if it is awesome. It seems pretty stupid. <laughs> but at the time, it seemed like, whoa, that's so awesome and badass. So. Um, no, she's got amnesia stuff. for the first half of the movie. I recall that. Yeah. And then at the end, there's like a thing where she doesn't remember. But then she's like, my name is Alice and I remember everything. But I don't. I didn't know what that meant because I didn't know what everything referred to. Like what? I think that was, that was the start of the second one, actually. Okay. Yeah, the second one's the only one I saw. So yeah. Um, it seemed very like important the way she said it, but again, I was like, I don't know what that means. Yeah, it would make more sense if you'd seen the first one. <laughs> I mean, that none of them have numbers in the title. How are you supposed to know? That's true. Yeah. That's why I keep calling it the second one, because I actually don't know what the subtitle is. I know one of them is Extinction, and one of them is Afterlife, and then there's the final chapter. I think the second one was just called Resident Evil 2. Was it? I thought it was like Resident Evil, like the spoopening or something. (laughs) It's usually something stupid like that. Yeah, maybe. Hey, uh, only there was a way to find this out. I'm Googling now. It's called Resident Evil Apocalypse, but on some DVDs, there is a two after the title. I thought Apocalypse was the third one. Yeah, not important. After the first first one, they're really garbage. Um, I'll be honest, Cam. I am probably with the rest of everybody else. I know. I I knew you wouldn't (laughs) care for it, but no, I always liked that one. I liked the um, 
I say the kind of slower paced zombie sort of movie. The the soundtrack was done by Marilyn Manson, so that was really oh you know, it was. was really... I looked at the soundtrack. There's five songs by Marilyn Manson. I was like, holy cow! Yeah, he did. He did the score, and then yeah, the soundtrack. Like I bought the soundtrack when I was you know listening to that CD over and over and over again. Oh, there's there was a part I really liked that I thought was. It was kind of dumb, but I it was kind of cool. That's when they're in that hallway and the lasers are like chopping yeah. them up. That was pretty neat. I like that part. Yeah. <laughs> Far out. I yeah, I haven't seen this film, but um, if I stumble across it on Prime or a streaming service of sorts around Halloween time this year, maybe I'll oh, watch man, it. I had to I had to freaking pay for it on on Google Play. <laughs> but you guys, it's on the CTV. It was free on the CTV app. Oh well, it didn't show up when I searched. So. <laughs> I mean, I'm I, I'm saving it for Halloween, you know, when I need to get spooky. Um, cool. Nice. Well, um, I'm going to change gears on us pretty dramatically, <laughs> and talk about Blonde, uh, Andrew Dominic's film. Sort of a biopic of Marilyn Monroe, not really, because it's based on a fictional novel, um, and I think very openly revels in being a work of fiction in its uh, style and tone. So it's not really accurate to call it a biopic, but it certainly is like, you know, trying to represent a real life figure, and they use real names for most of the characters. Some of her husbands in the film are not referred to by name, but by their sort of role the athlete the playwright but it's very clear who they really are this is okay so i mentioned like i had a hard time finding movies that people really hated that i loved or that everyone hated this was the lone exception because people hate this movie this is one of the most viscerally hated films i've seen in my lifetime um and certainly for like you can find other films that are more hated in terms of like really like uve ball films or like just sort of openly reviled stuff but for a film from a acclaimed director with clear resources and production value that's aiming for a certain prestige and and uh, artistry, this is like vilely hated. And because I was thinking of other filmmakers who have like a real strong backlash against them, people like Alejandro Gonzalez in Yurutu, or maybe Three Billboards Outside Ebbing, Missouri, that there's a contingent of people online who like really hate these films or these filmmakers. But you also look more generally at the, you know, awards recognition or critical reviews and like, okay, clearly this is maybe, yeah, there is a strong amount of people who hate them, but that's not reflective of the overall tone. But Blonde is closer to being like, yeah, no, everyone hates this. You can find positive reviews. Obviously, Ana de Armas got a Best Actress nomination for her work in the film. So it wasn't entirely shut out by the sort of... um uh awards community it it had some positive notices but man this film was really put through a ringer and not unwarranted to some extent i think there are valid criticisms to make of it i think inherently the film is exploitative i think in some ways all you know tellings of real people's stories on film especially when those people are dead and can't control that representation at all is to some degree inherently exploitative, but there is also a greater degree of that exploitation when you're talking about someone who, you know, was historically victimized and the film is is very much 
I would I don't know if I would say reveling, but it is certainly um languishing within that uh abuse and hatred and making up new uh unverified or un sort of provable acts of uh violence committed against her that are made up for the film and putting them in there. And I think there's there's valid discussions to be had about how appropriate that is and valid criticism to be made of that. Um but there was also people who like just took the near the mere act of this film's existence as like personal. Uh, and I think on some level that might be because there's just a lot of Marilyn is not just like an icon. She clearly is that, but the people who really love Marilyn, there is almost the sense of like this kinship to her, like feeling close to her or feeling like really protective of her legacy and her life. Um, and so this producing a really strong visceral reaction of disgust from people like that. I don't have that connection really. Like I, I find Marilyn interesting as a figure. I liked her. I've liked her performances in a handful of movies a lot. I'm actually going through this year watching all of the films she ever did, uh, which is kind of fun because we're just starting to get into the actual good ones now, but that's an aside, but I don't ne necessarily have a strong personal connection to her. So I didn't have that visceral response to the film, um, but it was kind of fascinating to watch just, kind of infuriating at times, but also fascinating to see just how uh, strongly people were against this film on principle. And then when it came out, that did not really quell people's anger and frustration. I think I love the movie. Um, and I think it, the, honestly, when I see it again, I'll probably love it even more. Uh, maybe not. We'll see. And it's possible after going through Marilyn's whole filmography, I'll feel differently about her and her life and, then I'll feel differently about the film. But on a first time watch, I found it to be one of the most beautifully made, uh, technically amazing and visually inventive films I've seen in recent memory. Um, and also just as a visceral experience of this sort of horrific uh, story and this sort of desperate yearning to be, to find unconditional love and never getting it. And just this, this feeling of oppression and this, totalizing inescapable horrible quality i found maybe not the most pleasant viewing experience but certainly a powerful one and i did find it at times extremely touching um and the scene i want to talk about is actually one that i've heard get really strongly criticized specifically for a number of reasons which is the scene with jfk where he as opposed to his normal image in american history as like you know, one of the few good presidents and like good men to hold office and the ideals and hope that he represented is portrayed as this crass, vulgar, uh, sexist, domineering bully who, you know, takes her in privately and really coerces her both in a very degrading and violent way into performing Marilyn into performing oral sex on him while he's on the phone dealing with some other uh, woman making accusations against him and he's working with like his handlers so, like how to quell and silence that um, and Marilyn is having this internal monologue as she's you know forced into this act about you know it's a scene to be played and any scene can be played and as this is happening we cut to a TV that's in the room because they're in a hotel room playing this B science fiction movie with rocket ships going off and there's kind of two mainline criticisms of the scene one is the way it portrays jfk in general it's just this sleazy uh character and certainly like jfk sleazy womanizer is not like unheard of in the culture but it's rare you see it this 
just sort of viscerally ugly um because it is just like it's repugnant stuff but the other is the imagery of the rocket going off as like visual symbolism for sex is like so cheap and obvious and crass like how many movies have done that to some degree and it's you know for this film that's aspiring to this like artistry and uh tragedy in Marilyn's life this is like beginner's level pretentious film imagery that is actually really shallow and I don't necessarily disagree with that but I also think there's something really clever about that use because so much of Kennedy's legacy historically is tied up with um the space race and even though he doesn't live to see you know Americans step foot on the moon that's part of his legacy in the speech about you know you know, we choose to put a man on the moon, not because it is easy, but because it is hard. That's really pivotal to the overall romanticized legacy of Kennedy. And so I find it a very telling choice that when you're cutting to rocket ship imagery to simulate, to visually symbolize the uh, this sexual act, it isn't NASA footage, test footage, building rockets. It isn't the classy, um, ambitious American exceptionalism. It's a cheap, shitty b science fiction movie that it is cheap that it is crass that it is vulgar like that in and of itself is another layer by which the scene is um subverting and throwing away the kennedy legacy as it is typically remembered and so while i get the critique of like really a rocket come on how basic can you get i think it's actually a lot more clever than it appears um and as to the criticisms of the scene that it you know is is degrading to this president who was this great man i just don't care it's fine <laughs> so that's my moment uh i just i think it's um it's a good example of how what the what elements of the film people really strongly object to and why and where i don't necessarily like think they're wrong or i disagree fully i just think that what's being objected to is being done in a more deliberate and knowing way than it maybe would appear on the surface yeah, I think that's fair. I think that it would it's hard to argue against the craft of this movie, but the argument comes in I mean, yeah, I I think you've negated the whole don't use the rocket ships because it's cheap idea. I I like really like what you said. Um but I do think it's kind of personal opinion whether you like the way that things are being portrayed here. Um but there's definitely there's definitely no argument that it's being portrayed in a very deliberate manner and the way that it's done is expertly done because you yeah. definitely feel it like you definitely come away with like oh that guy is a sleaze ball mm-hmm. and feeling really really bad for her and to me like i i was kind of glib earlier but like i don't care about portraying jfk in a mean way part of that is because the film style is so openly artificial that it'll shift aspect ratios on a dime. The really sort of uh, not just black and white cinematography, but very romanticized old Hollywood, like very uh, exaggerated black and white. Like it's such a distortion of the real world. And then you've got like some of the night vision stuff, some of the more surreal imagery. It is so openly unreal while also being this fictional story that to me, the language of the film is very clearly communicating. This isn't a literal representation of history in the past. It's not literally saying JFK was actually, you know, a horrible, like, quasi-rapist figure. 
Um, and to me, like, I understand that for some people that is going to be like, even that indication is going to be irresponsible. And that might not, that might honestly be the more practical approach to it. But I think more just as a metaphor for a uh, patriarchal society and it, it's effective. And frankly, I just think in terms of that tone, that sort of nightmarish oppressive tone where you know, you meet the most powerful man in the world and he's just another lecherous uh, pig who completely disregards Marilyn's humanity and her agency and views her like everyone else as just another tool for his own gratification of sorts. Like, as a literal depiction of Kennedy, maybe not the best, as a metaphor for, uh, well, actually not even as a metaphor, but just as an embodiment of how vulnerable we feel within the context of this story, I find it quite chilling and very effective. I thought the the whole movie was good at, you know, portraying her as just kind of, you know, really objectifying her. And yeah, I, I'll be honest, I completely missed the context with the rocket ships at this, that point, but uh, so That's I was fair. very confused by the show notes. I, was like, I don't remember <laughs> when did Marilyn go to space? <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, I think it did illustrate how you know, you know, various points in her life. And again, I don't know squat about her, so I don't know how much of it was real, how much of it was uh, fictional. But you know how she was just you know kind of used and abused in one way or another her whole life. It seemed. Mm-hmm. I thought they showed that quite well through the whole movie. The fact that you know. She's at the top of her game, meets the, say, the president, and she's still just another plaything for him. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it's and- interesting because in that case, like, they're really playing with because Marilyn Monroe is not just a celebrity and a well-known celebrity; like, she is one of the most well-known celebrities. She is an absolutely beloved figure, and so you're playing with her reputation and then in this same scene you're playing up with another pretty massive personality that like jfk and Marilyn monroe are their personas are so huge that it takes it takes balls to to mess around with their images like this like it really really does well that's the thing they're more icons than they are people and you can argue that about all celebrities to an extent but there are certain figures that at a certain point crossover where there aren't, they are more images than they are actual flesh and blood human beings. You know, it was interesting that blonde comes out the same year as another Australian it's Elvis. Yeah. Messing with <laughs> yeah, American icon. Yeah. I was just icon. that too. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and the funny thing is too, is like, they're actually, as much as they're similar in that regard, and they're also like very stylized films and for all the ways they maybe are biopics, they feel much more unconventional. The core difference is that, Elvis in is in a lot of ways affirming of the myth. You know, it's it's pleasurable in its design for a lot of Elvis fans in a way that Blonde is not. Um, and in fact, like, and to a degree, I think the criticisms are fair that Dominic is in focusing so much on the horrors of Marilyn's life and the abuse she suffers that it does diminish the ways she was also like her own agency her own artistry, the ways in which like, you know, the 
the ways in which she did actually a lot of brilliant work and important work is just completely ignored and elided. And I'm of two minds of that. On the one hand, it is it does lead to a less fully fleshed out person than another movie might have offered. But on the other hand, every single biopic ever made compresses the life and character of somebody into a reduced, limited form. And in some ways, I would I think it's more uh, admirable and optimal for a film to say, you know what, we can't capture all of the complexities of someone's life. So we're going to really zero in on the specific aspect of it and the specific sort of theme that runs through it at the cost of these other things, then try to encompass everything and say nothing. Because you look at like, say a conventional biopic that we've picked on a lot on the show, but it bears repeating Bohemian Rhapsody, where it says everything about Freddie Mercury, but also nothing about Freddie Mercury. It's just the summary of, of a Wikipedia article, basically. Um, Blonde gives you a very narrow point of view of who Marilyn is, but that point of view is like shockingly and hauntingly realized on film. It is definitely an interesting film because like I can, I can see your, your point of view because you lay it out really well. I can, the artistry is absolutely there. Like this, this movie is gorgeous at at a lot of moments. Like I, I kind of think of it as almost, it's almost like all those photographs are just brought to life. In, in a way that's really unique. Um, I don't hate it. I'm not, I'm not on your side, Dan, but I'm not on the hater side either. I'm somewhere like right in the middle, right? Definitely didn't hate my watch. There was a lot of things that I admired about it. Um, but I did find it exhausting. Like mm-hmm. I found it an exhausting watch. Uh, and I can kind of see, like, I can, I understand why people would like, would hate this movie like Kimberly when we watched it I watched it with Kimberly and she hated this movie like when it was over she hated it she had checked out at some point mm-hmm. um I and... found it really boring <laughs> <laughs> so I mean I get it like I was checked out at some points too like it there were definitely some parts that really engaged me but I can the I there were parts where I'm just well, being bored being bored is one thing but being like like viscerally hating something i think is something else I, yeah yeah i don't think i i say i would i don't hate it but i sure sure wouldn't watch this ever again that's fair i mean that's the thing and that's why it's interesting like people there is such a that's why i bring this up because again like there's a lot of movies that like i like that maybe not a lot of people like as much or that i love and that other people think are like maybe just okay but like this is a film that I thought was fantastic that people viscerally hated that were disgusted by its mere existence before they saw it. Like if you if you scroll through like say letterbox reviews, which is not necessarily a barometer for what everyone thinks, but certainly will give you a, an indicator of what at least a certain section of people think. And man, it is so like there's 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 positive reviews amidst them, but there's such a and part of it too is it's not just like this is a bad movie. It's like this is morally repugnant that this was made and that people like this. And some of those reviews I think are less fair than others. There was one that has stuck out to me for months because it was, I think it was literally just the one line where it was like, why not just make porn instead? And I thought that was baffling because while there is a lot of like uh, sexuality in the film at a certain level, it is the furthest thing from titillating imaginable. It is, if anything, 
one of the most anti-sex movies I've ever seen. So that was strange to me. Like I, I, but there's, and I don't think that's a fair criticism, but there is this, like, there is a moral quality to a lot of the objection to this film that it wasn't just a bad movie, that it was like harmful or distasteful in what it was doing. And which is partly why I've been kind of quiet about my enjoyment of the film. Not necessarily. I don't want to point this out. Like I've been bullied into silence. Like I don't, (laughs) it's fine. And part of it is also just like getting older and being less willing to get into fights on the internet about movies because life is too short. Um, (laughs) But part of it is also because the the reaction that people have to this movie is so it, not not for you cam your reaction is like yeah it's boring which is <laughs> kind of welcome <laughs> in the in the circumstances but people who were like was so primal and emotional that it it would feel i don't know like to get into like a real argument about the movie was just like it was almost i wouldn't want to do that for risk of even just like getting into an upsetting conversation with somebody um, and because frankly, a lot of the, a lot of the divide of who likes the movie and who really hates it is gendered. Most of the people who are more willing to defend the movie are men. And most of the people who really hate the movie are women. There's a lot of men who really hate the movie too. And there are certainly women who like the movie too, but there is a much more pronounced gender divide in the reception of the film than of m- really any movie I can think of in recent memory. And on that level, I alone, I was like, I don't, I'm not going to say I don't believe in my opinions on the film or I think they don't hold water because I'm a man. I do believe in them, but because of that, I'm also far less willing to get into a fight with somebody online about it because there is a degree of how identity and experience affects how you relate to this film that I think it would be hugely disrespectful on my part to be like, well, you're wrong. You guys both mentioned iconography. Like, do you think that? for lack of a better term, it, that was also, you know, a bit of nerd rage coming up from everyone because, you know, they're changing, like you said, changing the perspective of JFK, but really changing how people might see Marilyn Monroe. Yeah. There's, you know? there's a quality to that. I think, um, I think it is, it, it's distinct from something like how we would use that term as comp- in, in the context of like star Wars. Because yeah. I can't, I can't think of a better term for that, but sure. Yeah. I know what you mean though. Yeah. I think yeah. there is a quality to it like that. Like this is an image that people hold really sacred to them and to see it in well, such... to see her doing what she's doing in this scene, for example. Sure. Yeah. 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 That can it, shatter. It's ugly and hateful. And I also, and I think there's a valid argument to be made that it's not just um, a subversion that upsets people, but it is like, potentially not handled the most gracefully and the most ethically that it could be. Um, but I do think, yeah, there's absolutely a quality to that again. Like there's, and I, I don't want to be dismissive or condescending when I say this, but I think there's a certain section of the Maryland fandom that feels a certain possessive quality and a kinship to her of like, no, she wouldn't want this. And she might well not want this to be clear. Like she might well have hated this movie. Um, but there is like, this degree of like you can't do this to her to our icon that goes beyond just being a fan like there's a real personal emotional um connection to that well you did it dan you talked about blonde on the podcast I did. Yeah. <laughs> I, yeah i know that you were nervous about that <laughs> well again like I, I i made the joke but i really am like and i'm not again i don't want to make myself into a martyr like i don't feel comfortable talking about this but it's more like i understand why this is 
a fraught subject that inspires really viscerally negative reactions. And I don't want to be dismissive of that. So from what you've seen, though, is a lot of the hate just because of the content? Like, for me, it wasn't the content that I didn't care for. It was the, I mean, you mentioned the aspect ratios changing and the going to black and white color. And a lot of that I found really jarring and annoying. Mm -hmm. For me, that's what took me out of it more than, I mean, I was a little bored with it, but that took me out of it more than the Right, it was more the the style of it than, yeah. Yeah. Well, and it, to me, it seemed like they were just thinking of anything that they could throw into a movie. You know, hey, mm-hmm. you know what people like? Night vision. Let's put that in. Mm-hmm. Hey, sure. you know what else people like? GoPros. Let's do that. That was very jarring, I found. And I think there's a quality to that, but I, th- I think the real, like, the really sort of hostile, like, hatred of it was more essentially that it's a film that wallows in her suffering, that it's a film that would it makes a spectacle out of a woman's trauma, her abuse physically, sexually, emotionally, and doesn't have a lot of empathy for her. That was basically the gist of it. And I, and I don't, I I think the film does have empathy for her, but it is a film that eliminates a lot of the positive qualities of her life. A lot of her, uh, like her, there's certainly an attention to her artistic ambitions, but there is less attention to the ways in which as a performer in comedies, for example, the work she did in those films and why it was exceptional, her starting her own production company, her efforts to control her star image and to uh, take agency of the films that she was making and the work she wanted to do. And all that is really left to the wayside. And it is just a series of like the most horrible traumatic events on an assembly line. That was essentially it, that it was wallowing in suffering without empathy. And I've heard the argument made that if you had this exact same movie, but you changed so it wasn't Marilyn Monroe. It was just an actress who was inspired by. Maybe you made some of the details less clearly rift from her life. The response would have been maybe not unanimously positive, but would have been a lot less like venomous hatred. And I think there's probably truth to that. But I also think part of what makes the film as powerful as it is, is that it is taking these images that are so iconic and so ingrained within our collective uh, pop culture and collective memory and uh, sort of perverting them and, and uh, recreating and twisting them into these monstrosities. You lose a lot of that power if it's not Marilyn. So I, yeah. So I'm not saying I wish it was just an inspired by, I think it is better because it is based on her life and it is a version of her life, but that's a discussion that I've seen. I mean, you, you mentioned empathy. I thought it, it was, to me, that illustrated well. Like she did see like potential all the b- abuses that she went uh, went through, and probably have happened to a lot of actresses, if not worse than her. But you know, maybe not having reached that level of stardom. Um, but yeah, you don't ever really see any of the happy moments that much. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and there was also there was also like discussions about the section of her being forced into an abortion and it being seeming very like uh, pro life e in terms of it's not so much the content but even the way it's visualized felt like comparable to a lot of like pro life propaganda, which is a thorny thing because I can totally see where the imagery fits within that, but in the context of the story, it's not her choice; it's something that's being forced on her. But also, like, 
it's being that's within the confines of this story and narrative like they designed it to be that way so i don't think the film is making a pro-life argument overall but i can absolutely see where the imagery there feels like it is so um yeah yeah i mean there's 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 a lot and then also part of it was andrew dominic gave an extremely dumb interview where he was talking the interviewer was kind of challenging him on like you know some of his assumptions about maryland's films and their lack of maybe value and specifically talking about gentlemen prefer blondes and the interviewer was making the point about how her character and Russell and Russell in that movie are actually in some ways, very subversive characters. And they maybe appear like these one dimensional um, sort of gold digger stereotypes, but there's actually a lot of commentary about gender roles and, um, and there's a lot of playing around with power and agency. And he kind of had this really dismissive line about like they're well-dressed whores. I don't know. And it's like, oh, God damn it. You're not making it easy to like this movie, Andrew. Um, So that, I mean, that's the thing. Like, there's some interviews, too, he gave where he sounded very thoughtful and elegant and really had a good sense of what he was doing. And then other interviews where he seemed a lot more dismissive and kind of snide. So that's part of it, too. Um, Honestly, I think now that he's not on a press tour, that's part of why I think I'll like the movie more as time goes by, because he won't be saying dumb things that I'll be like, shut up, Andrew. It's <laughs> I, it's bad enough already. You don't got to make it worse. Um, So fingers crossed anyway, but I've ranted about blonde for a while. So um, yeah, I'll, I'll pass it back to Ian. <laughs> okay. <laughs> All right. So I'll go to something a little less vitriolic. Uh, Okay, well, kind of, I guess. We are going to be talking about the MCU, so people can get pretty fired up about that, That's I suppose. That's true. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so my next pick is Eternals. Now, I, it's not a movie I love, but I think that it fits this conversation because I think it's a movie that is unfairly dismissed by a lot of people. Um, and so Eternals was, what was that, 2021 or 2022? No, it came out. 21 yeah yeah it was kind of the first batch after covid of the marvel movies Mm -hmm. and uh my moment is there's a part where two of the main characters so selma hayek and i keep calling him rob stark but what's his real name richard madden he's icarus in the movie isn't he? icarus icarus and um ajak i think is what selma hayek's playing I don't know that their names matter. These are characters that nobody has ever heard of before. So and might not ever see again. <laughs> right. But anyway, there there there's a flashback scene to them talking on the porch. And um we don't need to know all the context leading up to that scene, but it is a very revealing scene, I will say, in terms of plot twists and things like that. Uh, but it's it's interesting because they're talking about what they're talking about is um whether what this grand plan is so there's i guess the the idea is that there's a secret plan that all these eternals the the 10 eternals that were sent to earth ages ago they're there for a secret reason which is basically a reason where the earth ends up being destroyed so that this um this giant being can can grow from the earth so that the giant being can then go make stars and make um, more solar systems and things and so earth is kind of like a breeding ground for it. And so they're just kind of preparing the way, but the whole time they didn't know that they thought they were there to protect the earth when really they're going to end up destroying it. And 
these are the only two characters out of the, all the other characters that knew that. And so they're having a conversation about it. And basically what it turns down to is Salma Hayek decides that that is the wrong course of action. And she's going to fight against this. And Richard Madden is basically saying, well, no, I think we need to stick with the plan. I, it's a, it's an interesting scene because for a few reasons, first in terms of the MCU, it actually, it's like one of the only scenes that actually relates it to the rest of the rest of the series, because it actually talks about like all the events in Endgame and how they, how Thanos caused all life to go or half of life to go away and how they brought it back and how she found that was admirable. And the other thing, though, is because it speaks to, again, this is kind of almost like now that I'm thinking about it, this is like Prometheus, right? I think that the movie is getting at deeper themes and it's exploring deeper ideas than people expected in a movie like this. And in this case, again, the themes are almost religious because they're being sent here by this giant sentinel creature called um, Arishem, I think is his name. But he's almost treated like the MCU creator, right? Like he's he's like the god of the universe. And so they're basically arguing about a relationship with God, whether you need to hold faith with what you've always believed and never veer from that belief or when you have a crisis of faith. And that's really what this conversation is dealing with. And I think that that's what the movie on a whole is dealing with. And you see different characters throughout the movie dealing with it in different ways. Um, and this Icarus character almost becomes like a radicalist in in a sense, like a um, an evangelical in a sense, like he will not veer from what he believes is the truth. And he's fighting against Ajak, who he's always looked up to, where she's, you know, doubting, doubting her beliefs and she's questioning what's right and what's wrong. And so I think Chloe Zhao injects a lot of this into this movie. And I think it's unfairly dismissed. I think people rag on it for being a little bit slower paced or too many characters. And I think there's a whole bunch of reasons, but I think it's a deeper movie than what was expected. And I, I like it for that. I appreciate it for that. I like this one too. It was, you know, I literally just watched it last night for the first time and I really enjoyed it. I like, I like, like you said, those themes of kind of, you know, testing faith and everything like that. And I think it goes in, um, you know, the fact that a lot of them have names similar to what, uh, you know, various gods throughout, yeah, like the Greek myth and, and everything like that. I thought that was a really neat way to do it. And so it kind of gives them that godlike capability, but even they have someone to answer to. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, I mean, Ian, my main thing is, like, you got to get around to watching Bergman's Winter Light. Like, this whole thing is, like, your quest for God? Like, come on now. It's just... <laughs> you're you're only going to get taken so far by aliens and the MCU. Fair enough. <laughs> you want to get real spiritual, Uncle Bergman's here for you. Um, no, I mean, I'm of two minds of this, because I actually I quite like this film. For me, other than Doctor Strange and the Multiverse of Madness... This is far and away, I think, the best Phase 4 film and significantly better than the others. Phase 4 has been kind of shite. 
But on the other hand, I do, I do sort of get the negative reception in as far as for this to be the Marvel film that was kind of put forth as like the big statement of like from Academy Award winner Chloe Zhao, like this is our this is our art movie. I kind of get why people were more willing to be critical of it because as that big swing, I don't think it's big enough. But I also think it's reflective of how the rest of the MCU gets a pass because it isn't being that ambitious. Like, well, you know, it doesn't really want to say much and the action scenes aren't great and the jokes are, they're not amazing, but they're fine. Like they're, they're fun enough and they do what they want to do well enough that they always kind of get that pass. You know, this film is maybe not quite as satisfying in the same way as some of those other films when they're at their best anyway, but is generally more thoughtful, more thematically ambitious more visually ambitious to a degree, but not enough to be an exemplar in those things. And then it also doesn't, it doesn't work as just breezy entertainment. So it gets uh, criticized more than it should. In a way it is similar to Prometheus in that it is a movie that's punished for trying to be more than just a summer entertainment. Yeah, I'll agree with that. Because it's almost reached this point where it's like, it's a given that it's the worst one. Right. It's a like when when people when people are talking about it, it's like it's a given that Eternal like, oh, this was one of the I don't know about this one. It's one of the worst ones. Well, except Eternals, of course. Right. They they make comments like that. Mm. Like it's like everybody should share the opinion that Eternals is terrible. Well, and Thor Love fighting, and Thunder I'm hopefully took against that, that throne pretty quickly, because who oh boy. Uh no I I see what you, mean oh, you haven't seen Ant Man yet <laughs> I have not seen Ant Man and the Wasp Quantum Mania yet um in part Just because I saw wait. Thor Love and Thunder and I'm like you know what are we doing here I mean the third first two Ant Man aren't good in my opinion so yeah I mean I I like the second one okay the first one I don't dislike it but eh um, yeah I I it's very white bread. It's just that's fair. That's a good way to put it. And that's the thing. Like Marvel have skirted by on that. Like they have a couple of films that have more personality as everyone immediately goes to the Guardians of the Galaxy movies, uh, for example. But for the most part, they are like functional light entertainments and they're never really more than that. And it is kind of again, like to me, Eternals' response is less indicative of it being much worse than the others and more the MCU gets treated with kid gloves because they aim for the middle and, yeah that's very likely um because to me like this is so this is the i think the only mcu film that has like a negative rotten Tomatoes score um but it is not i think even close to the worst one and to me again that's more just indicative of not oh wow they really sunk low that one of their films got a rotten tomatoes like a rotten score so much as there's a lot of other films before this that should have gotten a rotten score that didn't like Thor the Dark World. Um, well, I've got this in my top 10 for, yeah, the, I would for too. the Marvel movies. I think I would too. Yeah, I would too. And I haven't seen all of them, all of them, but I've seen almost all of them. And yeah, this was, I really liked it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I'm not sure. I'm, I, I do think it was like overly bashed. To me, honestly, there's a couple of things I think are fair critiques of it. For one, I think in general, like, while it is better looking than most MCU movies, it certainly doesn't look as good as something like Nomadland or some of the movies Zhao was making. 
um, before. I, I do think she could have pushed the visuals even more. I will agree mm-hmm. with you there. And but it maybe like has too that many giant characters. guy's hand coming out of the ocean. Like that's a there's some there's some amazing imagery mm-hmm. in there though too at the same time. And some of it is also things that like were talked about a lot in release, and then when they came out, it was just like that's it. Like there was a lot of like the MCU's first sex scene. It's like mm-hmm, that's generous. Like, <laughs> yeah, like Cam's making a face. Oh, like, there yeah. was a sex scene. There was things like that, like or like yeah. Angelina Jolie's presence, where it's like a big movie star, and she feels like really checked out. Like it's one of the few times you would ever be like, oh yeah, Angelina Jolie was in that. Whether you think she's a great actress or not, like she usually has a presence of like a star, and she doesn't in this. She's just also there. Um, and I think in general, it probably does have a little too many characters. But um, yeah, but okay, I'm gonna argue against that. Yeah, there's a lot of characters, but the characters have a hierarchy of importance that sure. I think the film plays well. Like it's not like they're trying to give all 10 characters. Oh, yeah. I just think they're just do. not that interesting. Most of them. Hmm. Like I thought I, Angelina Jolie's character Thea was or Thena was the most interesting. Really? But well, what I liked about it was like and uh, and maybe just the way I'm interpreting it, but I mean the either the the PTSD basically she had or the dementia she had. I thought those were interesting things to see in a in a god essentially. That's fair. That's fair. You know, as soon as she started having like the flashbacks, or whatever. That's what I, my mind eventually or immediately went to is that she's having a PTSD flashback, mm-hmm. and I thought that was an interesting thing to take on. And then later on, it kind of presented itself more as Alzheimer's, dementia sort of thing. That's I, I, just, I thought that was, to me, I found that really interesting. Yeah, yeah, I probably found that more interesting in theory than in execution, but I see your point. Um, I think the other thing is, again, this question of like MCU fatigue, because like, which has been talked about a lot lately, like they had so many movies coming out in the last two years they generally weren't other than Spider-Man No Way Home. People weren't generally really enjoying them that much. And I didn't like No Way Home very much. So um, I was sticking out there like they haven't been. If this had come out maybe between, I don't know, Infinity War and Endgame, say, which wouldn't have really made sense from like a story perspective. But in terms of like where Marvel was in the culture, I think this would have been a lot more warmly received. Um I think people's patience is starting to wear thin in general. And I also think there's this greater question that I'm not sure I totally relate to, but this question of like, where, where is this going? What are they building to right now? Like everything feels very like just disconnected and random that these guys especially felt so disconnected from everything else that it was like, well, what do we even do with this? I think it would have been better served to not even actually put it in the MCU itself and just sure. have it its own right. kind of entity and they don't talk a ton you. about it mm-hmm. you know well, it is sort of their own thing but i think if it had that disconnection from the entire mcu i think that actually would have benefited it but yeah like mm-hmm. you said the 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 fatigue is i mean especially you know building up through all the movies civil war Endgame, infinity war and then you're thrown in this other kind of big epic you know world destroying thing coming at you again Mm-hmm. Yeah. I-, I could see how it'd be tiring and this question of like is this gonna go anywhere like this one ends with some massive like cliffhanger post credit scene stuff like Thanos's brother and it's like are we ever gonna see any of these characters again 
is the Shang Chi tease with his sister? Is that ever gonna go anywhere? You know, uh, uh, Captain Marvel teased the Skrulls invasion. Is like I think there is a, the Secret Invasion show in the, the works, maybe. Yeah. yeah, but it's like there's so many things that have now been set up that it's like, whereas and we talked about this in our Marvel episode, but like it used to be the the teasers were like, oh, that's Thor's hammer, and then Thor was like the next movie. You know, they paid off either like the next film or pretty quickly. And now it's just like, here's a story thread that maybe we'll pick up on. And you have no idea what it means. And that I, to me, Eternals is actually kind of less egregious in that than some other Marvel films lately. But it is like more stuff that maybe will pay off and maybe it won't. Because even like Guardians of the Galaxy was pretty on its own for a long time. But the first film, like, the Infinity Stones is pretty clearly linked to the other movie, so you had that to latch on to. And then by the second movie, you like the characters enough that it kind of doesn't matter if it's its own little adventure. Um, I'm not sure I care about that stuff as much, really. Um, but I think in terms of like why maybe the reception was more hostile, that might be a factor. Yeah. I don't know. I just remember going in knowing nothing about any of these characters, not even knowing that they existed before the movie came out. And being really surprised by the movie and liking it. Cause I thought I like, I was going in, I'm like, do I really have to watch this? <laughs> and I guess the answer was no, but I still went to watch it anyway. Mm-hmm. And then I was like, Oh wow. I really like that. So nice. I just wanted to defend it a little bit, I suppose. Well, someone has to. Yeah. At the same I time like when they're too. doing, they're doing the post credits and they're bringing in these characters that, I mean, they're kind of scraping the barrel and I'm sure I'm gonna, <laughs> at this point, yes. yes, you know, it's like, I'm sure. Yes. There's millions of people that like black Knight and everything like that. But at the same time, most people aren't going to know who the hell that is. Oh, a hundred percent. I mean, it shows, I think it goes to show that like they've really leaned into like celebrity casting, like who's playing Thanos's brother. It's Harry Styles, you know, <laughs> Doctor Strange, Multiverse of Madness. I don't know who that wizard lady that shows up is at the end, except that it's Charlie Theron. You know, um, yep. like you really need to be like they're really leaning on that because most of these characters are like jobbers. They're not interesting. <laughs> and like people say, well, Guardians go. So, you know, one knew who they were. But, you know, you can't just do that. Like that's lightning in a bottle. Um yeah. Not to say you shouldn't try to make stars out of new characters or tell new stories that people are less familiar with, but this idea that like Marvel, everything they touch will turn to gold is just not, it's demonstrably not true at this point. Well, it's like, yeah, yeah it's knowing, you know, when to run with something. Yeah, Guardians did take off and they were able to go with that. And, but then when you try to create that same magic, it's by forcing it, it's, it doesn't come off that same. Uh, you know, it's not organic. It's not doesn't feel the same. Mm-hmm. Yeah. All right, Cam. Let's move to your next pick. Okay, so my next pick. Um, <laughs> so this. Uh, first off, I would say I, I I never loved this movie. I definitely didn't think that it deserved all the hate that it got. Um, and it is Terminator Salvation. Now. Upon a second or third watch, um, I am I stand corrected. <laughs> oh, <laughs> I see why everyone hates it. That's it, funny. It uh, was jarring how 
much I did not like it um, upon further views. So this is movies that we thought we hate that we're not sure about now. Yeah, and you know what? I was I was gonna change it after I watched it and I watched it again, and I was like, ah, you know what? This could be you know interesting talking point because it might be one of those things where um when i think i talked about it on our last last time i was on with clerks i was afraid to watch it because i you know heard that you know going back and watching it it's just not as good it's not the same thankfully that wasn't the case but it sure as hell was with this (laughs) um so before i get to all my gripes i'm gonna say the the, my moment is gonna be um fairly early on um that oh Sam Worthington is that it his name mm-hmm. his character yeah. Jake Sully yeah how does he get roles he's awful <laughs> he's I like him he's oh good man avatar. he's so wooden which I mean I guess he's a robot so go figure but uh so yeah he's there with Kyle Reese and the little girl there in some gas station in the middle of nowhere and they're talking. To the survivors there and you know looking for the resistance and then all of a sudden out of nowhere this big uh capture bot comes through bursting through the the ceiling there and grabs them with their big claws and stuff like that and i think that just really encapsulates uh how kind of stupid this movie is in my opinion like you know every other scene of these robot that robots in it's you know this 50 foot monster stomping around that you can hear like a t-rex and all of a sudden he's come you know approaches on his tippy toes and is able to (laughs) nag these people to the it was just oh so bad (laughs) i yeah i was disappointed with how bad it was and and it's it's just weird because like the first time i watched it i remember in my head, you know, the first time watching it, I kind of got that feeling that, um, you know, from the first two ones, first Terminator 1 and 2, they really had that horror element to them. Like, I know Dad and you've t- talked about uh, Terminator, the first one being kind of like a slasher. Mm-hmm. And, and I'm totally in that vein, too. Like, that's essentially what it is, except, yeah, you know, he shoots people instead of stabs. But it's you know that kind of unkillable monster that's just relenting and, and falling. And I, I thought the first time I watched Salvation, I had that same feeling, and I definitely did not. It was so disappointing. <laughs> that's too bad. Interesting. I found I found it was just filled with like, yeah, just you know throwbacks there, like almost to too much. It's like, hey, remember that part? You know. How you loved uh, when uh, Sarah Connor did the one arm shotgun pump? Well, here it is. Mm-hmm. Or remember that time that uh, they're on the motorcycle and the semi burst through the bridge chasing them? Well, we're going to change that. We'll just have the motorcycle burst through that and you're in the semi. Or there's that Guns N' Roses song and <laughs> just everything that they could kind of think of that people might have liked from the first two that, hey, we got to throw that in. Yeah. yeah, it's interesting because friend of well, friend of ours and friend of the show, Justin, I think he's a fan of this movie too. But I would question when's the last time he saw it. I wonder if he'd be on similar lines as you or not. 
Yeah, I don't know. Because I remember actually texting him after I had, uh, watched it. I mean, this admittedly was a few years ago. And I said, I don't understand where all the hate comes from. And we kind of discussed that. And yeah, I don't like it anymore. <laughs> so what do you think changed? Like what? I I don't know. <laughs> I wonder if it's just expectations. Like maybe the first time you saw it, you thought it was going to be so bad. And the fact that it wasn't like the worst movie ever is like, oh, this isn't too bad. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and then maybe. going in with the mindset of like, hey, this is kind of good. And I mean, like, ooh, maybe kind of good was overselling it. <laughs> yeah, I think that's probably a good way of looking at it. Yeah. I had high expectations, so I was grossly disappointed. Whereas before, <laughs> I had low and the, they came out way better. But mm-hmm. Yeah, I don't think I've seen this in a very long time. Not since theaters, but like a little bit after, like when it would have come out on DVD. And I liked it then, but I, those wouldn't hold up now, I don't think. I was pretty young, and I was, like, desperate to make the Terminator franchise work. Um, <laughs> which, man, talk about a losing battle. But um, It's over after the first two. Yeah. And like I will say, to this movie's defense, I do think I probably like it more than Terminator 3, if only because... It's trying to do something different. It's not just Terminator 2 again, but this time it's a lady Terminator. Yeah. Um, And that, like, there's something to that. You know, I, it is kind of weird that the future in this movie resembles more the Mad Max world than it does Terminator world that we have been glimpsed in the other movies. Um, And it's also a shame because I don't know if you guys are aware of this, but the, or Ian, if you've even seen this movie, um, have you salvation yeah 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 but i honestly i think once like i think in theaters well as you know sam worthington is a robot in it and it's kind of like he finds it out and he's like horrified originally john connor was going to die in the climax and they were going to basically make a new skin for the sam worthington character that looked like john connor so he kind of took over that role so it would be this twist that like Oh, John Connor, the legend that we've been building up for all these years, he actually is in world as well, more myth than he is actual capable person. And then it tested either it tested poorly or Christian Bale just didn't want to do that. And they changed it to being <laughs> he lives at the end. And I don't know if I would have loved that twist, but I do think it's certainly more interesting than just like, oh, there's a battle and then he, he lives and it's fine. I think they ended up doing that in like Genesis or something like that, didn't they? I didn't. I didn't see like, too many yeah. John Connor robot. You, he ended. Yes, I think so. Well, I know he got possessed by the metal goo uh, from the trailers, and then became evil for some reason. <laughs> I didn't watch it. I was like, I'm done. No, I couldn't do it. <laughs> I mean, um, I, as good as I thought Salvation was at the time, I knew that that it was just going to get worse. So <laughs> sometimes you just got to pull the plug, you know. Well. I say it just pisses on the first two, and I mean, those two are just so good. I think the story is really good in that, and you know they've you know they tie it up in a nice, pretty bow at the end. Like mm-hmm. so, then to keep on going, that so the events of the first two and everything that they went through, and in, in, especially in the second one, is just is moot. Yeah, I mean it's that Jurassic Park thing where it's like it's one good idea, you can only take it to so many films. Yeah. 
Well, especially when the second one, it's like with the ending of the second one, it's like you are in charge of your own destiny. And then the third movie is like, eh, no, you're not. Yeah, just <laughs> it's like you. completely switches its philosophy. That well, always yeah, got but me too. There's money to be made. Uh, I know. So, so what can you do? It's fine. I mean, that's 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 sequels, baby. Nothing's uh, ever over. Yeah, isn't that the truth? So, Terry Crews is a corpse in it. <laughs> oh, right at the beginning, where he's coming out of that like hole or whatever, and the whole team, the whole unit's been slaughtered. He's mm. just slumped up against the edge there. Bizarre. His, his big start. <laughs> <I know>. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, it's I, I I I'm probably in a similar position to you. I don't I don't think it like deserves to be hated, but it is like pretty mediocre and not very good um so points for trying something but (laughs) eh. well and just like there's just so many weird things in there that don't make any sense to me at least to me and maybe i missed the note or something but like the one point where they hotwire vehicle and then um rooster by alice and shane starts playing on the stereo which i thought was actually really cool i actually really like that because i love alice and chains but you know, he's getting all, oh, my brother used to listen to this, and then turns it off. Yeah, there's a certain just kind of, I don't know, cliche sentiment to it that doesn't really resonate. It feels very mediocre. The action scenes are decidedly not great. The story, yeah. there's some interesting maybe ideas, but it doesn't amount to anything. Visually, it doesn't look awful, but it also is just like, oh, Mad Max, let's just do yeah. that. Um. It does not feature purple laser guns like the original Terminator movies do in their future sequences. So <laughs> massive thumbs down. Yeah, I don't, I don't want bullets. I want purple lasers. Well, the, yeah. that uh, T six hundred with a minigun is just is comically useless. <laughs> <laughs> like it's just you know can't you know it's supposed to be this high tech robot can't hit a simple human in an open area and then it gets sliced up and it's just constantly like whoa, whoa, whoa everywhere. <laughs> That's why you need those lasers. Oh, no, not again. <laughs> uh, well, sorry we made you go back and ruin this movie for yourself. <laughs> mm-hmm. I thought I was like, this is a good choice. This is a really good choice. And oh. Well, it's interesting oh, well. that all of us, our second film is like, well, I don't really love this, but because I'm kind of continuing <laughs> that trend with The Creature Walks Among Us which is the third and final film in the Creature from the Black Lagoon trilogy. And I was kind of just scrolling through, trying to think of something to talk about for my second pick, and I was scrolling through Letterboxd of just, like, sorting my films logged by worst, lowest average. And I came across this in, like, the two-point-something out of five. So not, like, the lowest of the low, but pretty lower-end and you know, scrolling through reviews and listening to other people's thoughts on it. It maybe would be overstating it to say everyone hates this movie, but not many people respect it. It's seen as just like a cheap, shitty B-horror film pumped out by a franchise that was dwindling returns, just trying to make a quick buck off the one success they had with the first movie, which is really good. And there's valid criticisms to be made of this. This movie is very cheap. The makeup effects, or the, the costume rather, um, is looking progressively worse film to film. There's this just general, like most of the film is just set in a house. 
most of the actors are not great uh there's a bit where like the creature the gill man just like knocks over a light and for some reason that knocks out power in the whole building like it's very just cheap b-movie logic but what i like about the film is that for whatever its faults it maintains the inherent tragedy of both this trilogy and the universal monsters at their best where the monster is not just a scary thing they are in some ways a victim and a tragic figure in this case the gill man who has been subjected to all sorts of bullshit by human beings who's been you know attacked and tortured and put on display in an aquarium like i would be annoyed personally but this one takes it a step further and actually has some interesting story material where he the humans end up performing surgery on him and removing his gills and because he has functioning lungs they realize, and there's for whatever reason, I don't remember the exact details. He's in a fire, he's burned up, they have to do the surgery, and it ends up destroying his gills. So he cannot return home. He cannot swim. And that comes back to in the final in the ending really powerfully. But there's just this shot of the gill man in a room in this house that the human scientists are studying him, just looking at the water with outside, with just this unsaid just sadness and you can talk about all the ways in which the movie is like silly the costume already is a silly design but like it's looking pretty cheap um the movie in general is very sparsely decorated it's you can see you can see the seams all the time in the set pieces it's very clearly not an a or even b production it is a c movie but <laughs> see movie because there's a set hand in the room. background holding coffee <laughs> <laughs> honestly it would not be out of place but it may there is a certain b movie pathos to it it for all its silliness there's a an integrity to the core tragedy that has defined this character and the universal monsters since uh frankenstein and dracula in 1931 and that goes a long way for me and so having taking the time that amidst all the silliness to have the creature the gill man sadly regretting the loss what's been taken from him and reflecting on the ways in which this is really a story about human meddling the scientists who are um you know ostensibly doing this for research and for advancement and whatnot and the horrible damage they've done to this thing that on some level just wants to be left alone at this point it really comes through and for whatever its silliness i think there's a lot of power in that and i also think there's a certain it ties in, maybe I'm just thinking about this because of like the shape of water and the way at which it very overtly positions the its gill man against uh, the experiences of women, disabled people, and queer people like as comparable to those experiences because one of the subplots in this film is there's this woman in the house amidst the scientist who's like basically being, there's like a love triangle going on and both, the, uh, and the men are like horrible to her. Um, and there and there's even a point where the the gilman saves her from one of the shitty dudes and so there is this sort of like underspoken like thing about the creature the gilman being a metaphor for oppressed people in society and i think that's a nice little touch it's not overly insisted on and it is like it's only going to go so far the movie's not a particularly sophisticated in exploring this theme but it is there and that goes a long way for me and I, in general, I tend to like my escapism, no matter how silly, no matter how cheap, to take its world and characters with some conviction. And this does. And so maybe I don't love the movie, but I love this detail about it. So it still fits our theme. 
<laughs> yeah, good moment. That's uh yeah, that's well said. I didn't know A that this I haven't seen this movie and B I didn't know that it existed. <laughs> <laughs> it's technically the final Universal Monster movie. Is it? Okay. Mm-hmm. I'm not that well versed in the Universal Monster movies, like other than you know the main the original well, it's kind of, movies. It's kind but... of a cheat because it comes out in like 1956. At this point, we're like 25 years removed from Dracula. Like, oh really? The way you were talking about it made it seem like it was like a decade after the first movie. No, no, no. It's 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 56. It's uh, oh, okay. They it was uh, creature from 54. Revenge of the creature 55. Mm. Creature walks among us 56. Pumping them out. Sorry, what was the second one called? Revenge of the Creature, which okay. I also like. Is that one loved or hated, or what's um, the general reputation? It's probably more well liked than the third movie. Okay, but it's also seen as like a clearly lesser than the first one because the first one. I don't know if it's beloved, but it is seen as like a classic of sorts of at least monster movies. Yeah. Um, the sequels, great. yeah, it's, uh, the sequels don't have. They have the reputations of most Universal monster sequels other than Bride of Frankenstein, which is to right. say they're seen as like cheap, lesser than um, kind of just quickie filler content, really. Um, but I think they're doing some interesting stuff. I would argue it's the most overall consistent series of any of the Universal monsters. They None of the sequels hit the highs of like Bride of Frankenstein, but they never, to me, hit the lows of like Ghost of Frankenstein, say. Or um, the Wolfman sequels, or uh, not that the Wolfman even really had sequels, but like um, the Invisible Man sequels and the Mummy sequels, say, which are like quite a bit worse. Um, These are at least still, while they are cheaper and they're they're showing kind of the same thing again, there is still an interest in the way in which the Gilman is exploited by the horrors of humanity. Yeah, because that's one of the things that struck me from the original uh, Black Lagoon movie is just how sympathetic that creature was to mm-hmm. the audience like that, that really took me aback and it definitely makes it a richer film. So I can see why this moment would work for you. Well, all the sequels too, like the Gilman is, you know, like the ending, I don't know if it was meant originally as like, I won't say what happens. I don't want to spoil this because I do like it. I, I wonder if it was originally intended as like a cliffhanger, like, Oh, what's happening next? But it being the last one, it's actually way more melancholic and sad. It's just this like, mm. man, he can never go home. He's forever alone in a world that hates and fears him. And he's endured all this horror for nothing. Mm. And he's just walking into this uncertain future where he can never be at peace. And that's how the Universal Monster series ends. And it's perfect for characters who are defined by their own tragic existence. Neat. Huh. Yeah, Cam, did you have you seen Creatures in the Black Lagoon? No, I literally just heard about it uh, yesterday or whatever. Uh, but this morning, <laughs> uh, this morning I did look it up and looked up, um, you know, a bunch of kind of a few synopsis on YouTube and stuff like that. And I found that actually the, the ending clip there. And yeah, like you said, Dan, like it is, I was surprised how how powerful it was. Like just he's just staring. It's it's a simple shot, but it's you know you can really, really you really feel for the guy because it's like yeah he just wants to go home and now he can't. 
and mm-hmm. that's all he wants. And you know, he can't live amongst us, and he can't go home. So he's just kind of this, you know, giant ghost of a you know figure that's got no no house, no mm-hmm. home, mm-hmm. nowhere to go. It you know kind of had some Frankenstein like vibes yeah. to it too. Mm-hmm. You know, basically this monster that man created in you know obviously he was something different beforehand but to you know convert his lungs and everything like that and mm-hmm. now you know and he's just you know hated vilified mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. for you know not no real fault of his own yeah yeah i think uh and that to me is why these films are still worth defending for whatever their sloppiness as films because they're, they're sloppy like you can very clearly see the seams and points um but they are true to the core of what the Universal Monster movies should be for me. They're true to that tragedy. Um, and that makes all the difference. So, Man, so both of my picks. Are... <laughs> 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 so both of my picks ended up being about religious exploration. Both of your picks ended up being about exploited individuals. True. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, Ian's looking for God, and I just I just don't want to be so sad. <laughs> and mine is just way out there stuff. <laughs> and yours is a cool zombie dragon and axe. Yeah, yeah. Zombies <laughs> and robots, you know. Um you're you're keeping it pure. Yeah. <laughs> Someone's um, gotta lighten the mood here. <laughs> it, well, yeah, this this got heavier, I think, than I was expecting to. Um, but that's okay, you know. So yeah, nice, th- yeah. Those are our movies that, uh, well, except for Terminator Salvation, that we love, that everyone hates. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, what were some other ones you guys thought of? I thought of Interstellar. I don't know. Like, I think there's a good group of people that mm. rag on that movie. I don't know how. I don't know that it would be to the no same i don't level. think it fits i thought about man yeah. of steel but yeah that would have been a good one the snyder cult though makes that difficult again it's another example of like the online fandom is so strong that i'm like i don't know if <clears> i can really say everyone hates this movie because like clearly you know that's not true um yeah. what else i was thinking I about immortals oh, I, I don't know that. if people I don't think if people hate it. I just don't think they. I think oh, I it just do. kind of got forgotten. Do you hate it? I hate it. <laughs> okay then. <laughs> that yeah, you could have done that then. Um, I mean, I mentioned, right, but I couldn't. I wouldn't too. have much to say because I haven't seen that in over ten years. So oh yeah, yeah. I have, I don't know. I find there's not too many movies that like. I love that people like hate. And well, the other thing I was thinking about fear and loathing in Las Vegas for a while, because the movie is generally like well-regarded, but the people who don't like it, like really don't like it. And like viscerally don't like it. Um, And Ian, I don't know if you've seen it, but I feel like you specifically would hate it. I know you and Nate were not enjoying me describing the vomiting scene in (laughs) such detail. Um, So, you know, but I was like, ah, it's too well acclaimed. Like it's three point seven out of five average on Letterbox. Like that's too high, you know. Yeah. But that's the other thing. Like there was a prompt on Twitter recently where it was like, "What's your, uh, the lowest rated average movie on Letterbox that you give five stars?" And mine was Ad Astra, which has an average score of like three point three or something like that. Oh yeah. Um. Yeah. 
and that's partly because I'm just I'm pretty stingy with my fives. If we included four and a half, it's blonde with a bullet with like one point four <laughs> out of five average score. But my fives, I'm like I hoard those. I don't give those away very easily. Yeah, me neither. Awesome. Okay, well, before we go, I just want to mention. Uh, so if you listen to us on Spotify, I'm trying these like interactive questions. I mentioned it last time. I don't know where they show up and I don't know how you answer them, but they're kind of cool because then we can we can see uh, some stuff. So, for example, on our post-apocalyptic movies, I kind of asked, what's your favorites? And so we just want to give a shout out to Will, who was the first person to answer me. So the ones he came up with were The Matrix. That was a good one. Mad Max 2, like The Road Warrior. Akira. Mm. La Jete, which we did bring up because we were talking about 12 Monkeys, and Stalker. Oh, yeah, very good picks. Those are his, those are his picks. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I don't so know why for... I would have never thought of Matrix as being a post-apocalyptic, but that's exactly what it is. Mm. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, I think because we spend so much time in the virtual world, we forget, like, oh, yeah, it's yeah. not all like this. The real world sucks. <laughs> Just like Those now. are good picks. Yeah, so thanks, William. So, yeah, keep... Uh, I'll keep putting up these questions about the episode. Give us your answers and see what you see what you came up with. Woo. Awesome. So I mean and you know, that's, that's the big thing. We'll go what movies do you love that everyone else seems to hate? That's right. Yeah, because we can get some really interesting answers here, I think. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You can also tweet at us at cinema underscore seconds and send us an email at cinema seconds at gmail.com. Awesome. Well, Cam, thanks for coming on. Yeah, thanks for having me again. It's awesome. Yeah, always like the this. suggestion. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was a good idea for an episode. And Dan, you got a a brand new video. Yeah, so you might be here because of that video, um, given it's like endorsing the podcast uh, listener. But uh, yeah, I did a video on food and taxi driver, which was inspired by our conversation about the film uh, from many episodes ago, where we talked about food on film. And I just wanted to extrapolate a little bit on what Travis eats and why it's important. Um, It was a fun one to do, and it seems to be really resonating with people. So if you like Taxi Driver or you like bizarre food combinations uh, or both, check out my video on food and Taxi Driver. Sweet. All right. Did you make all the weird combos and eat them? I should have. That would have been a good, like, you know, (laughs) way to engage with the audience. It's like, did you take bread chunks peach brandy and milk and sugar in a bowl and eat it let me know in the comments <laughs> did you enjoy it so oh boy awesome yeah. okay well um i think we'll wrap her up there so right. thanks everyone for listening and once again thanks cam you bet i've been ian and i'm daniel and we'll see you next time